I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Gutsreed. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're celebrating the Christmas spirit with some of our favorite films and holiday recipes. We're talking true classics, eggnog, gingerbread, It's a Wonderful Life, and the lighthearted classic, A Christmas Story. TCM's TV commentator, film historian, and author Jeremy Arnold is here with us sharing his list of the best holiday movies to watch with friends and family this year. When I started thinking about it and looking at the many websites and some previous books that list hundreds of movies that are called Christmas movies, I realized that everyone has their own definition of the term because it's really not a genre. It's, it's a type of movie that can exist in almost any other genre. Um, there are other things that make something a Christmas movie. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. That's right, it's Christmas movie time. A time to be kids again and sit back and watch some holiday movies. Joining us is Jeremy Arnold, film historian, commentator, and has been appearing on TCM with Ben Mankiewicz. He's the author of TCM's Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season, and The Essentials Volumes 1 and 2, which are companion to TCM's long-running Essentials program. Hi, Jeremy. How you doing? Hello, George. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your holiday spirit with us today. Uh, first thing, I got to get this out of the way for, for a moment. This isn't really a seasonal item, but I hear you're a Mets fan. <laughs> I am, although on the day we're recording this, I just heard some news that made me seriously question my my Mets fandom because it looks like uh, Noah Syndergaard is going to the Angels, and I'm not very happy about that. But but yeah, this is a bit off topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hang in there. I'm a pre-69 Mets fan, so you know it, it comes <laughs> yeah, around. It comes good. around. Then you've known your share of heartbreak too. Uh, one thing I want to start off with right here is what really does make a Christmas movie because, you know, sometimes movies don't start out being a Christmas movie and they just have a scene and then it evolves as a, as a classic. Well, that was the question that made me interested in doing this book. The idea for the book was actually brought to me by um, <clears throat> my editor at Running Press, Cindy Cipolla, uh, who with TCM had already decided they wanted to do a book on holiday movies and they were looking for a writer. And I had just done the first Essentials book, and she thought of me. And at first, I, I wasn't really thrilled with the idea. I was never a particular Christmas movie person. Um, you know, some people get really intense about their fandom for these films. But when I, when I started thinking about it and looking at the many websites and some previous books that list hundreds of movies that are called Christmas movies, I realized that everyone has their own definition of the term because it's really not a genre. It's it's a type of movie that can exist in almost any other genre. Um, there are other things that make something a Christmas movie. And to me, it didn't seem particularly meaningful to see all these these films on these lists that maybe had at one scene at Christmas or were simply set against uh, that time of the year without anything else really going on. And so what made me interested was to learn about what a definition could be. And the one I came up with, which I lay out in my introduction, is that it's any movie in which some aspect of the Christmas season plays a meaningful role in the storytelling for the audience. This is my definition. And, and now for some people, it could be anything that has any type of Christmas, uh, any uh, 
semblance of Christmas whatsoever, even in one scene, and that's perfectly fine. But I think it was very interesting to think about movies that use what we know about the season, what we bring to the season every year, as part of the way we find meaning in the story and in the journeys of the characters in the story. And because Christmas can mean so many different things from joy and happiness to, to put it kind of simple, simplistically, to despair and loneliness, that's a pretty broad spectrum of emotions uh, to use as as fodder for Christmas movies. And so you get all types and genres, and some are broad and some are refined and sophisticated <clears throat> dramas, comedies, musicals, westerns, the whole thing. It's uh, very interesting when you see Christmas at work in a story. Now, I think a good example of that is one of my favorite is uh, The Shop Around the Corner, where it's not really a Christmas movie as a whole, but it, it kind of wraps up that way. And it, and, it, and it gives you that romantic comedy, sad, a little drama, you know, feel to it. What's what's made that so special? Well, what that, that was a really good way of putting it, that it wraps up as a Christmas movie, because what is so um, enjoyable about Shop Around the Corner aside from it being just one of the great romantic comedies from the great Ernst Lubitsch, the director, is that Christmas appears more and more as the film goes on, literally in the frame. You start seeing Christmas decorations, uh, snow, which we associate with the season, visual references to Christmas as the story goes towards Christmas in the timeline of that story. And the relationship between Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, which starts out as so bickering and antagonistic, when while the whole comedy conceit is that they don't know they're actually falling in love as as anonymous pen pals in uh, in Budapest, uh, and they meanwhile they work at this dry goods store where they just can't stand each other. Um, as the season goes on, it's you sort of get the sense that. Christmas time is acting as a catalyst to help bring them together and prod them towards each other and start to look beneath the surface of what they see about each other and realize that they have really beautiful souls underneath. And that is, in the end, the, the charming thing that finally it brings them together. And so it's not necessarily that the characters are talking about Christmas and Christmas is what the movie is about. But if it were not set at that time, the movie would, I don't think, would have the same effect because we bring something to it ourselves when we see that Christmas imagery appear and we get the sense that it's starting to overwhelm the frame and them in a sense. And then, of course, it wraps up with the double double offer of uh, Strudel at the at the end when, when Frank Morgan <laughs> is inviting the the errand boy to uh, to come out and and celebrate Christmas with him. So it has a has a very touching ending. Oh, did I give it away? I'm sorry. Okay. You know, it's, it's a very <laughs> charming scene, and it actually just real quickly it speaks to another thing that makes this a Christmas film, which is one recurring theme in Christmas movies is the idea of family. Families gather, they reunite. They have dysfunction. You see all the shapes and sizes. And in this film, the the co-workers at this store become, in effect, a family for us and for themselves. And that that is part of how it's a Christmas film, too. Now, talk about um, a little bit of dysfunction. Uh, another one, and of course, this plays maybe a little closer to Alex because it involves food, is Christmas in Connecticut, where she comes off as the, as the writer... Uh, 
food writer, cook, and then knows nothing about it. That's right. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck plays a basically, she plays a magazine columnist who, who masquerades as a Martha Stewart type. And in her columns, she makes her readers think that she has this great farm in Connecticut, that she's a wonderful cook, she's got a baby, and she can do it all. In fact, she lives in a little studio in Manhattan and can't cook anything. Uh, <laughs> and so this is a ruse that even her publisher doesn't know about. Uh, and when he decides to do a little promotion uh, for their listen for their readers, um, for a, a World War II veteran, a decorated veteran, to basically be her guest, be Stanwyck's guest at her house, and be treated to this this wonderful, perfect home life, uh, she has to come up quickly with a farm, with a baby, uh, with food, and uh, it's very entertaining to see how she manages to pull it off. So it's uh, you know. It, it's a delightful screwball comedy. And Barbara Stanwyck, people have to realize she had just done Double Indemnity. You couldn't get a more opposite kind of role or movie than that. That's a hard-edged noir. She was a femme fatale. She was murderous. And here, the question is, you know, can she flip a pancake? Uh, and she, you have to hand it to Stanwyck, who is probably the greatest actress uh, of that era in Hollywood. She commits to this role fully. She doesn't look down on it as some kind of frivolous uh, comedy part, uh, something beneath her. She really commits to it and that she, she, she treats comedy as seriously as she treats drama, to put it that way. And uh, I think the result is, is there on screen and it's why this film is, has become such a winner and such a continued delight for people. Now, when uh, that, we're in Connecticut with uh, Christmas in Connecticut, but if we take it a little bit more, I don't want to say heartland, but move it, let's say, to Ohio with A Christmas Story, which now the, the film is is pretty much from beginning to end, the, the center is Christmas. And probably a little bit more from people's minds, especially when it runs for 24 hours every year on multiple channels. It's so true. Um, yes, this this is specifically about Christmas as experienced by a child, but also, and this is why I like the movie as much as I do, uh, although I, I was never, I never grew up being a rabid fan for this film, but I've come to admire it. Yeah. In addition to that, it's also about an older man remembering what it was like as a child to be so excited about Christmas. And a lot of the comedy comes from the tension between those things. Because when we remember, when we, when we remember these kinds of, um, aspects of our childhood that we love, we do tend to sort of romanticize them and maybe embellish them and maybe heighten them. And that's exactly what kids do when they experience these things for the first time. Everything is heightened when you're young. And so one of the great uh, conceits of the film is that what we actually see when we go back and watch Ralphie experience this uh, Christmas time, we, what we see, it doesn't always match with the tone of what we're hearing in the voiceover by um, Gene Shepard. And so there's a lot of great comedy in that. It sort of brings things down to earth. And you see that things are actually a lot funnier than uh, than he, he remembers or not, not quite as exciting. Um, and so there's great joy in that. It's really as much a satire as it is a charming recreation of a quintessential childhood Christmas in 1940. Um, I also just want to say that one similarity with Christmas in Connecticut is the the idea of the house, the home, as a mm -hmm. central 
component of a Christmas movie. This comes up a lot. Houses, homes, they're, they are used in all kinds of different ways because that's something that we associate so much with real life Christmas, going home, going back to our childhood home, have, starting to develop our own adult home with our own mm -hmm. kids or whatever it, it, it may be. But of course, being at home with a family is sort of the, the, the quintessential idea of Christmas. And uh, there are movies in which houses are shown to be very dreary and forlorn as a way of making a particular comment about a character as it relates to Christmas. And then there are others as in um, Christmas in Connecticut where, and I love the house in that movie, it's, it's, it's spacious, it's enormous, mm -hmm. and yet it's somehow very inviting and warm. And you, it gives the sense of this is the classic Christmas house in snowy Connecticut. You get to it by a horse-drawn carriage, and it's very inviting. A Christmas story, it's a sort of a cozy, inviting home of our youth, the way that we remember it. And um, so that's that's very key. And then, of course, you got something like Home Alone, where the house is the major one of the major characters in the film. When you mention home and family, I, I can think of none other that's centric in the storyline is It's a Wonderful Life. And talk about taking you up and down. It doesn't get heavy religious, but there's a little bit of spiritualness there, especially with the angel. There is. Um, although I have to say that one thing I like about most classic films from that era that in some way touch on religious themes, they tend not to proselytize. They don't try to convert the audience. And um, uh, I, I really like that. Um, it's, you know, even a film like Come to the Stable, which is about two nuns trying to build a hospital in, in Connecticut, I think. And it's sort of, it's not really a Christmas movie, but it feels like one and it, it often gets played there. Even that doesn't really hit you over the head uh, with the religious element. Uh, but in, in It's a Wonderful Life, to me, this is the ultimate Christmas movie because not only is it just so impeccably made by, by Frank Capra, but it depicts the highs and the lows that we associate with Christmas. We remember the joy of the ending, one of the most joyous of any movie, but there's an awful lot of trauma on the way to that ending uh, for Stuart, for other characters, and for us in the audience. And I feel like we really earn that ending as as uh, he does. Um, and it it just taps into the loneliness and despair that can be as much a part of the Christmas season for any of us in real life as the joy and the togetherness and, and all that. Uh, sometimes we experience both at the same time, very, very normal. Um, and It's a Wonderful Life was also, in a way, rescued by Christmas. The film was, was not a flop when it was released, as is often reported, but it didn't do well. It, it barely broke even. And it was pretty much forgotten for 20 or 30 years until it was rediscovered on television. And then in the 70s and 80s, when it was uh, in the public domain for a time, it was shown as much as A Christmas Story is shown now. And that it became a classic because it was shown at Christmas time and people fell in love with this film. Um, Christmas Story, same thing. Not, did not do well when it came out and was only rediscovered and became a Christmas classic much later. So uh, it's kind of sweet when Christmas in real life can do this to a film, give it new life. Now, do you find that um, there's a thread with, let's just pick the four movies we just discussed. Is it is it The Family and Home or is it something even a little bit more magical with all these movies? Well, 
it's not just the family at home. That's just one of the recurring elements. The way I like to look at it is <clears throat> Christmas is meaningful in the way that you you kind of feel it as a force in these movies. And Christmas in Connecticut, it might make everyone a little crazier comedically, uh, give them more energy. And It's a Wonderful Life, it's, it's something that helps Jimmy Stewart transform and find his will to live again, as, as he puts it. And the idea that Christmas can heal, that Christmas can bring lovers together, as in Shop Around the Corner, that, you know, it, and, and it's not just that it does this in the movie, but it does so in the movie theater or at home among us as we're watching the film. Because I think the, the reason people love Christmas movies is the reason they love Christmas. It, they, it does the same thing. They, they bring us together and they sort of bring us back, back to earlier conceptions of, of Christmas and a sort of idealized view on Christmas. And in something like, you know, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, we, we laugh at our quirks. There's so many recognizable aspects of the season in there that are taken to comedic extremes. And other films do that in, in more dramatic or ro romantic ways. Um, other things they have in common are always transformations. Christmas can transform characters. This is something that goes back to Charles Dickens and uh, Scrooge and A Christmas Carol. Dickens really invented this whole concept and invented the idea of Christmas as something that can do that. And so almost every Christmas movie has some kind of character going through a transformation, whether it's the main character, uh, a minor supporting character, and maybe it's played for laughs, could be anything. But we accept that because I think we want to accept it because we kind of want that to happen somehow in real life at Christmas time. We want things to, we want to feel better about our lives or our families, or we, it's a time of reflection and resetting. And so these Christmas stories that tap into that are very enjoyable to watch because they kind of help us do it, I think. Well, I think a lot of it's relatable too, right? I mean, it's definitely a time of year where you're going through these reflections. And then when you see like Ralphie having his daydreams in school and they're always like over the top, but you can relate to being a little kid and daydreaming about when things get better for you. Or even in It's a Wonderful Life, you can really relate to the thought of, well, what would the world be like if I wasn't here? Do I really matter? And I think Christmas movies transform the viewer, like you were saying. Absolutely true. And you just reminded me that It's a Wonderful Life also shows two houses to show the contrast in Christmas. It's the same house each time. In, in the fantasy scene, the house is empty and has never been lived in, and it, it's very lonely and dark looking. And com contrast that to the end of the film where everyone comes in full of joy in the real house, which is full of light and laughter and warmth and music. And, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, it's a very effective way of doing it because it's so inherently cinematic. It's visual. We, we see it, we hear it, we kind of feel it because it's there on the screen. It's not just talked about. And um, that's a really, really good use of cinema there, I think, sort of tied into our, our own conceptions of Christmas and the way the, how, the home is used in, in Christmas. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. One of the earliest forms of gingerbread can be traced to the ancient Greeks and Egyptians who used it for ceremonial purposes. In the 11th century, crusaders brought back ginger from the Middle East for the aristocrats' cooks. As the ginger and other spices became more affordable to the masses, gingerbread caught on. 
An early European recipe for gingerbread consisted of ground almonds, stale breadcrumbs, rose water, sugar, and naturally ginger. It was then pressed into wooden molds. These carved works of art served as a storyboard that told the news of the day, bearing the likeness of new kings, emperors, and queens, or even religious symbols. The finished cookie might be decorated with edible gold paint or a flat white icing to bring out the details in the image. In the 16th century, the English replaced breadcrumbs with flour and added eggs and sweeteners, resulting in a much lighter product. The first gingerbread man is credited to Queen Elizabeth I, who baked them in her own likeness. The gingerbread house became popular in Germany after the Brothers Grimm published their fairy tale collection, including Hansel and Gretel in the 19th century. Early German settlers brought this Leberkusche house, meaning gingerbread house, tradition to the Americas. They never caught on in Britain, as in North America, where some extraordinary examples can be found, but they do exist in other parts of Europe. The Guinness Book of World Records for the largest ever gingerbread house was made in Texas with over 4,000 loaves of brick-shaped gingerbread measuring 21 feet and a whopping 1,800 pounds of butter. Today, gingerbread is a baked sweet containing ginger and sometimes cinnamon, cloves, cardamom, and anise, and sweetened with any combination of brown sugar, molasses, light or dark corn syrup, and honey. It can sometimes take the shape of a thin, crisp cookies and snaps, very popular in Polish, Czech, Russian, and Croatian countries. As a cake, gingerbread can also be a dark, spicy cake-like dessert served with a lemon glaze. That's good to know. The holidays not only mean buying and wrapping gifts, meeting up with long-lost relatives, and spreading holiday cheer, but it also means enjoying the holiday, themed food and beverages. That's the time of year where those seasonal hot and cold ingredients come into play with traditional hot beverages. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. How's it going? Okay. This is your favorite time of the year. You get to deck the halls and shake and stir and pour. And <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of riding that holiday liquor drink wave. Kind of starts, yeah, kind of starts before Thanksgiving and you just got to roll with it through New Year's. And then we put you away to dry you out the first part yeah, of the January, New Year. January, February are usually sober months. <laughs> okay. Well, some of my favorite things sometimes aren't just the personal imbibing, but also kind of being a little bit creative with uh, with drinks. And we've surprised people a number of times with some of the beverages we've put out. And first is uh, from an old Scan- uh, Scandinavian friend. Again, he was from Minnesota, a different friend. I must have a lot of friends in Minnesota that I never realized that. And was using a wassail bowl or wassailing, which is actually... Um, an Anglo-Saxon tradition, and it was not really of a Christian or origin, but it was just a way uh, during the holiday to put together a toast. They would get a very, very, very large vessel, a very large bowl, and it was usually done with made with a hard, hard cider or a mulled ale. And then they would throw apples in there and 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 sugar, um, eggs and cloves, and you know it was. I don't know. For me, the, the, maybe the traditional one was a little nasty. I, I don't think I would really imbibe and cheer with it. Or if somebody gave me that, I wouldn't. Why? Well, what, what was in it that wasn't good? I don't know. The eggs. First of all, I'm not a clove person. No, but, yeah, me neither. But we we do things sometimes. You know, and you do it with clove. So let's let's talk about an updated wassail bowl. An updated wassail bowl would just be a good apple cider. 
If you have a good apple cider, maybe a little brown sugar, some cinnamon sticks. Uh, you could use a little honey. Take a orange, and if you can peel the zest off the orange, and it's nice if you can do it in one piece, and then stick a couple cloves in it. Not too much because, you know, cloves are very, very pungent, very biting. Yeah, um, cloves and nutmeg, the way I usually describe them to people is like, you put in enough that it changes the flavor of what you're doing, but not so much that you know there's clove or nutmeg in it. Yeah, because, I mean, clove is is kind of like the anesthetic that they give you at the doctor to numb your It's like numb being at the dentist. You know? so, um, but again, the yeah, right just, amount of clove, and there's clove, something there yeah, that you don't know what it is, but it yeah, tastes you, right. You put that in a, a, a bowl that can be heated up and warmed up, and you put that out, and those aromas are just like magnificent. So that's just one type of uh, of warm beverage. Uh, another, of course, being a hot buttered rum, which is which is wonderful. It's a, a mix of, of of liquor and honey, uh, fresh herbs. You can put uh, mint in there. You can use. A variety of different spices. Again, cinnamon and cloves go go very well. One thing I remember years ago, actually, I was a little down. I don't know if I was starting to come off with a cold or starting to come up. And now this is not medical advice, of course, but I had a beverage manager, a food and beverage manager that says, George, I'm going to fix you a hot buttered rum. I swear within a couple hours, I felt great. Yeah. I, I'm, I do the same thing with a hot toddy. You know, I'll take make myself a tea and put a little bit of whiskey in it. And a lot of times it'll kill off a cold. I mean, this isn't obviously medical advice if you're really sick, but if you've got some sniffles, it opens you up, the heat warms you, the little bit of liquor thins out your blood, makes you feel better. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, Alex, have you ever had a Fusenbier? No, I don't even know what you just Grandma said. didn't make that for you? Fusenbier? I thought hey, that you made with a Zuckahawk? A Zuckahawk? No. <laughs> I don't know what any of this is. Okay. Well, uh, fear means fire and bowl be, is bowl. It's, it's a fire bowl. And actually, this is a very demonstrative thing to do. I don't know if this is something you should really do at home. Uh, maybe outside would be more ideal. And they sell actually these, uh, it's a zuckahawk, which is a big cylinder-shaped piece of sugar. And there's actually a holder that that goes on. It's soaked with rum. And then it's placed over the bowl of uh, like mulled wine. And then you take and you pour some rum on top of the sugar and then you ignite it. So you have the, the alcohol from the rum burning off in the sugar and those drippings are going into the wine. So it does taste good, but it is a beautiful thing to say. Now, what it sounds like a barbarian celebration i like that now what makes a mold wine a mold wine is this just based on the spices that are added to it yeah it's 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 like almost like macerating or marinating it's you're mulling the ingredients together um sometimes if you want to even bring out more pronounced flavors you would you would take uh like a a mullet it looks like a little baseball bat Kind yeah, of, like you where know. you make a mojito. Mojito, and you crush that, and you crush that, and you crush all the ingredients in there, and then just make it up and, and make it more powerful. Now, this next one is not a um, a warm beverage. It's a cold beverage, and it is a out-of-the-park home run. Everybody loves this. Uh, I was 
uh, at an event in Venice and they brought this out as a kind of like a thank you for, for being involved with it. It's a Scrapino. It is like over the top. It's a, it's a sparkling wine. I don't want to say it's a champagne uh, beverage, but it is made with Prosecco. And you, you take a little um, uh, Prosecco, lemon sorbet, uh, a little half and half, couple ice cubes, and you just put in a blender only for about 30 seconds, just for it to all come together. And it's almost like if you can picture a, a Slurpee. Yeah, or I was going to say, it sounds like a like creamsicle that. almost. But I, I, I mean, I don't like cold beverages. I don't, I don't really like things with ice, but this is just over the top. It's almost like a dessert. You can serve it with a spoon. Uh, if it's in a fluted champagne glass, it is, uh, Again, very demonstrative, you know, garnish it with a little uh, like uh, charred lemon on on the top. Uh, and it's also it's also very refreshing because it is not really that sweet. That's why you're using sorbet. You're not using sherbet. And a lot of people kind of get those things mixed up. Well, I mean, I think a traditional one that everyone's familiar with is on holiday mornings is having mimosas, right? And this just sounds like a really nice way to take a mimosa up a notch. It, 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 it totally is. I mean, it's um, super easy to do. And if you just have these lemon sorbet in the, in the freezer, you just pop it out at the last second and, and into the Prosecco. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a nice, like you said, a, bever- a morning beverage, brunch, uh, especially New Year's Eve, you know, or New Year's Day. These are the types of things that, you know, want to celebrate on New Year's, there's no other beverage that's more popular than a sparkling wine and a champagne. Now, yeah, that's definitely what wraps up this wave of holiday cheer that we've been talking about is usually some type of champagne toast to the New Year. Yeah. I mean, the symbolism behind it is that it is um, of abundance, of of really good cheer. Um Traditionally, I think one of the best uh, simple drinks is just like a champagne cocktail, which is just a a sugar cube with maybe a couple bitters in it, Uh, pour it over uh, with champagne and, and just let it, just let it go. Now, if you're making a champagne cocktail, I wouldn't use the best French champagne. You can get away with something a little bit different. Yeah, um, I think with any of these, I think with the Scarpino, with the Mimosa, whatever you're doing, you can get away with getting, you know, a 9 or $10 bottle of champagne or Prosecco to make these drinks, make your buck go a little further during the holidays because you're not really drinking it for the pure taste of the of the wine itself, right? Right. And a good way to to tell if it is a really, really good champagne is check the, the bubbles because basically you're, you're paying for the bubbles. That's what why you have a sparkling wine. I, I always get anxiety when I see people open up a bottle of champagne and it's just sitting there uncorked, uncapped if they haven't finished it. Because as the bottle sits on the side, all that all that gas, all the reason of what that wine is about, it's it's just escaping. How do you check the bubbles? And okay. what are you looking pour, for? Pour it into a glass, and what you want to see is rapidly amount of small bubbles. They go shooting up, right? straight up, straight up, as opposed to you know slower, less frequent, and they're kind of zigzagging up a little bit. And it's a good way to tell the quality of the fermentation that was done. Um, 
back in the cellar. Okay, because that was going to be my next question was what what determines the quality of bubble, and it's from the fermentation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but your your tip is is excellent when it comes to any type of uh, mixed uh, wine or mixed sparkling wine. Is you don't need to be spending, you know. Uh, a lot of d- dollars on on that beverage. You can go with a little bit less. Yeah, and even with these mold mold wines and drinks too, right? And even the ciders. I, I mean, we've made that that wassail bowl, but more of an apple cider with bourbon. And you don't really have to go with a crazy expensive bourbon or or an expensive whiskey. You can get a cheaper bottle because so many of those spices are going to take over that flavor anyway. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with like even the malt cider or you don't even necessarily even have to put alcohol in it if you don't want. If you have kids, if you have, you know, people that aren't imbibing that um, they can just have a very flavorful drink to, to toast. So in a movie like, let's say, Elf, where he's definitely this, this, this lost little boy do we see ourselves in elf is that is that what makes it like such a cherished christmas movie oh absolutely i mean this is a a man child who uh who you know experiences you know oh boy santa claus is coming you know he thinks santa's really coming to the mall well that's you know, I, I I hope that we were all like that at one point. I can't quite remember, but but I mean, believing in Santa Claus and being so over the top excited. It's it's like in a Christmas story where things are heightened for the child. Things are really heightened here for uh, Buddy Will Ferrell, and but to, but to a more exaggerated comic. Uh, extreme because it's the different kind of comedy, obviously. Um, so yeah, I do think. We see ourselves, and I'm always touched when I see Elf. The ending of that movie gets me every time. I mean, it, I can't believe that it does, but when you see Santa flying his sled over New York, over Central Park, there's something about that which is just the sort of classic conception of what kids think Santa is and the way it should look. And it was done for real. You know, it was they they didn't make a joke out of that. They They just allowed us to go back to our childhood for those few seconds that that imagery is on the screen and just enjoy it. Uh, and I, I really uh, love the movie for that. Uh, it's very funny in other ways too, but um, that is probably my, my favorite moment. So I have to ask because it's probably been the biggest internet debate about Christmas movies for the past couple of years. Christmas movie or not, die hard in your opinion. Christmas movie. Uh, yeah, in fact, if people are interested, I actually wrote uh, an article for The Hollywood Reporter two or three years ago about this, and it's easy to find online if you care to look for it. And I wrote a pretty uh, a, a lengthier defense of the film as a Christmas movie. I also write about it in this book. It's, it's in there for sure. Um, yeah, it, it is a Christmas movie because Christmas plays a meaningful role, role in the storytelling. Um, it's basically a film about family dysfunction and reunification before the terrorists take over and McLean has to go into action. But the way the film starts is with him going to, you know, journey to his wife to try and reconcile on Christmas. And that is a classic Christmas movie kind of idea. Um, But even more than that, the film takes conventions of the action movie and basically finds Christmas movie variations on them. 
So, you know, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun, we, we see at one point. Um, we see, uh, you know, a sort of very ugly version of a, of a Christmas sweater with that written on it. We, we hear Ode to Joy in the soundtrack when, when the uh, thieves finally open the safe and it's as if they're opening a big Christmas present. So there are all kinds of other references too. Um, at the end, snow is falling in LA in the form of office paper falling from the building. Um, there's Christmas music in there. And also, this is a joyful action movie. Yes, there's violence, there's shooting, there's killing, there's death. But it's not unpleasant or cruel. It's It has a joyful tone to it. And that makes it, uh, I think that is the secret that makes it something people want to come back to every year at Christmas. At least those of us who do. And personally, I like something a little different. I like a little darkness, a little cynicism, a little something different than the usual, um, you know, heartwarming stuff. So pushing the emotional buttons besides faith and hope and love, uh, fear also falls into that, that, that pot of emotion. Sure. I mean, look at, um, Scrooge in a Christmas Carol. That's a, that is a terrifying story. And he, Scrooge spends a lot of the film in terror, uh, when, when the spirits are, are taking him around and, the 1951 version really becomes a horror movie at, at one point. Um, it's a wonderful life has its own variation on this. When, when Clarence shows George, what the world would be like without him, it's sort of the, the equivalent of the spirit of, of, uh, Christmas to come. And, and also not just fear, but the idea of magic and the supernatural, uh, this, this comes up a lot throughout Christmas movies, uh, again, both seriously and comedically, poignantly, there are angels, there are elves, there are, you know, there's Santa Claus for real in some movies, as in Elf. There's, we we accept supernatural and fantasy and magic elements in Christmas movies pretty easily, I think, because the season is already kind of magical, and we already kind of believe in things that are are magical when it comes to to Christmas time, especially as children. And uh, I think that just adds to the delight of it all. Okay, you have probably screened more Christmas movies than anybody and all your writings and, no, and thought. <laughs> what is your number one pick? What is your number one, number one movie? Well, I have to say It's a Wonderful Life for the reasons that I already went into. And uh, it may not be the most fascinating choice because it's a pretty common choice, but uh, you have to hand it to Frank Capra in... The, his blending of the tones, uh, which is so hard to do in movies, is probably the hardest thing a filmmaker can do is blend tones like that because audiences get conditioned pretty early in a film to expect a certain type of approach. And then if you suddenly try and recondition them to accept something else, it, it doesn't always work. You really have to know what, what you're doing in terms of um, controlling the flow of the audience's response and emotion. But... Um, it also, it's so uplifting and heartwarming at the end. You just, it's really hard to get away from that. It gives you a complete emotional experience, that movie. So that to me is the best one. But beyond that, there's a there's one classic that I really love that um, should be better known called Remember the Night. This is a 1940 film with uh, Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, before they did Double Indemnity. And uh, actually, they did two other films together after that, too. And this is a film written by Preston Sturges, directed by Mitchell Lyson. And it's a romantic comedy 
with some very serious drama in it as well. It also is a film that that blends tones very well. McMurray is an assistant DA in New York who's prosecuting Stanwyck for shoplifting. And the conceit of the story is that she has to spend the holiday in jail until the trial can start. He takes pity on her, bails her out, ends up driving her to Indiana, where they both have childhood homes. And of course, they end up falling in love, and we wonder what will happen with the trial. But the point is that it uses tropes of Christmas to define the characters. We go to Stanwyck's uh, parents' home, and it's a dark, foreboding house with one of the most horrific mothers in movie mother history. Um, And we go to Fred McMurray's house, and it's full of light and warmth and good cheer and festiveness and food. And that tells us about the characters, and it tells us something about the the, the emotional suffering that Barbara Stanwyck has has gone through in in her life, and it's through tropes of Christmas time. We just instantly recognize it. And other than that, it's just a beautifully written and uh, produced film, and it always tears at people's heartstrings. And I think anyone who seeks it out gives it a chance. I, I guarantee that uh, you will like it. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but if you don't contact me, I'll send you a free book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know uh, Alex. Your your number one is is Elf. Okay. Yeah, Elf's yeah. probably up there for me. I also I grew up on Home Alone, so I love Home Alone. And and I agree with you, Jeremy. I think my number one too is It's a Wonderful Life, followed by um, uh, The Shop Next Door. That's one of my one of my top. Um, maybe it's just because of the the European culture being in Budapest. You know, gives it a gives it a nice charm, but um, it's just marvelous to have you with us today. You're just very, very inspiring, very inspiring. So, thank you for saying that. Um, I, I, the only other thing I would add is that um, the there's a line, there, there's a group of Christmas movies that delve into darker, more cynical, and maybe black comedy takes on Christmas movies from the Man Who Came to Dinner. <clears throat> We're No Angels, oh, uh, The yeah, Ref, yeah. Bad Santa, yeah. you know, and also a great film from the 70s called The Silent Partner, uh, which I only recently saw. It's just fantastic. Um, Elliot Gould and uh, Christopher Plummer. And I really enjoy those movies too, because it's just nice to get a dose of irreverence, you know, a dose of darkness amid all the otherwise cheery holiday films. Um so I would, and some of these are, are in my book as well. So I hope people will take a chance on those too. And as they should, because you are the go-to when it comes to Christmas. That's for sure. <laughs> Very kind of you. Thank you. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you for uh, allowing us to be kids again today. It's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely a pleasure. Thanks for bringing us your cheer. Thanks for having me. It was my, my great pleasure. That was Jeremy Arnold, film historian, commentator on TCM. He is the author of Turner Classic Movies, Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season. For more about Jeremy and his informative books, visit runningpress.com. And for more on festive Christmas movies, visit tcm.com.
For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. Okay, Alex, so this time of year, you know, we're talking about, you know, beverages and celebrations. Do you ever celebrate with a Yuletide flip? (laughs) I don't know what that is, so I might have. You got to explain it to me. I don't, I'm not doing any flips with my body, if that's what you're asking. Well, I think doing it sometimes a Yuletide flip with a beverage is is actually a good way of celebrating cheer. Now, actually, a Yuletide flip is uh, the name, uh, a flip and I even used it in It's a Wonderful Life when uh, Clarence the Angel had walked into the, the bar and he ordered uh, a flip. And he said, we don't serve those kind of drinks here. We yeah, serve whiskey to people who want to get drunk. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, but a Yuletide flip, it comes from the uh, an eggnog. It's basically, if you can think about it, it's almost like the thinnest of pastry cream in a beverage. If you can, if you can think of it, if you can think about it, like a sauce anglaise almost, you know, um, but, and, and it's readily available, of course, off the, off the counter in the store, which is fine. And it's easy and it's safe because it's been, uh, pasteurized. Um, but it's not necessarily the same taste you're going to make if you, if you make it at home. And again, it's Christmas Eve, it's Christmas day, it's New Year's Eve, New Year's day. And you say, oh, you know, I want to make something special. Chances are you have all the ingredients in your home. You know, you have the dairy, you have that, you have the cream. But historically, um, it is British and it was made with a milky ale like drink. You know, um, probably I'm thinking it was kind of the, the bilge that came off their ale. That's what I'm thinking of, you know, like that, 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 that type of stuff. It was used mostly by the wealthy because they were the ones that toasted people to prosperity and good health. Uh, founded in about 1700s, that's the earliest that it had in the, with the American colonies. And that's probably where it kind of was brought up as it was a eggnog or as a flip because the beverage you would have the eggs in one container, the beverage in the other, and you would flip it back and forth, back and forth until it made this custard. Um, but there's so a, they're there's, using as, yeah, that's what gets me is it's funny because when you hear a name like eggnog, right, you picture eggs and mm-hmm. you don't think of them in that kind of beverage form. So your description of it as being more of a pastry cream now makes the name eggnog much more appealing than it is to me before. But now, you know, talking about how they used to do it, cause everything's pasteurized and pre-made now, right? You get a carton right. of eggnog when you go to the store, but yeah, and now I can see why the name Flip came from that because you're probably getting air into the eggs, right? You're whipping them. It's getting frothy. Yeah, so if they were pouring it back and forth, it's almost the same like as today using using mixers. And eggnog, again, very, very simply, a uh, very easy recipe. And, of course, we always have all these beverages you know, posted online. But it would be six egg yolks, save the whites because you can whip the whites into a meringue and use that as a garnish on top. Uh two cups of milk or um, even half and half or a little bit of heavy cream. As far as alcohol, if you're serving with alcohol, you could put 
either rum or brandy or uh, a whiskey in there. Yep. I was going to say, one of my favorite holiday traditions, and you know I've been going to the same barber for years. He's a good friend of mine. And every year around Christmas, he makes a batch of his own eggnog. And he uses a couple of different kinds of rum in it, and he makes the eggnog himself. He won't give me the recipe. But every year before Christmas, I usually get one haircut that I don't really remember, but we have a great time in the barber shop just talking and going over the year. And it's such a great way to connect. Now, do you... Go there even if you don't need a haircut just to get an eggnog? You know, it's funny. Sometimes I do. Like there's been years <laughs> where I was living in the city or something and I got a haircut there and just came out for Christmas. And yeah, I stop in the shop because, you know, it's always fun to talk to your barber, especially when he's serving you up homemade eggnog. That's delicious. Uh, again, from here on in, once you have the eggs, you have the, the sugar, you have the, um, the, the, the dairy that you're putting in it. Uh, the alcohol. And if you're not, if you want to do it for kids, leave the alcohol out and you can even use chocolate syrup. Oh yeah, that's a good and, tip. And that would and that would work. And then whether you use nutmeg or cinnamon, um, you know, I only use grated, fresh grated nutmeg. I don't use the stuff in the jar. It it tastes a world difference. Um a little and you bit need of fresh, like barely anything when you grate it fresh and it makes such a difference. Barely nothing. Yeah. It's like zip, zip, zip. It's done. Yeah. You know, it's um a little fresh grated uh orange rind and then just just whip up the uh the yolks and the sugar heat up the liquid, and then temper the yolks and the liquid back and forth. And again, the recipe is is on the site if they want it. Use a little bit of the extra whites as a dollop of meringue on top. And it's it's an excellent way of, of toasting the new year and, and spreading cheer. As you enjoy your holiday cheer, please drink responsibly, not just for the alcohol, but also for the calories. And from Alex and myself, we wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and the happiest of holiday seasons. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.